I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Gospel of Luke has the genealogy of Mary, Christ's earthly mother, and she was from the lineage of David, and we're told that Christ had to come from the lineage of David. And the gospel account in Luke revolves around Mary. It doesn't really even mention Joseph. So Luke's account focuses in on Mary. Matthew's account, where we're going to read right now here this morning, focuses in on Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. And so the genealogy that's listed in Matthew chapter 1 traces Joseph's lineage back to David. So both Mary and Joseph were from the tribe of Judah in the household of David and were in the lineage to be the king. People have pointed out that Joseph could have been king, but there was a curse on Jeconiah that no one from his line would ever reign over Jerusalem. Christ wasn't his son, and so he reigns over Jerusalem because of the lineage of Mary. So open your Bibles, would you, to Matthew chapter 1. This is the story primarily about Joseph. Bret Hart is the author of the classic short story. I remember reading it. I can't remember if it was high school or college, but the classic short story entitled The Luck of Roaring Camp. Remember that? The Luck of Roaring Camp. It tells the story about the birth of a baby in a rough frontier mining town in 1880. Unfortunately, the baby's mother died in childbirth. And there were no other women in the camp. And so it fell to the rough miners to take care of this baby. And a startling change took place, came over the dissipated town. The drinking, the gambling, the swearing, and all the other types of behavior were curtailed as the hardened miners grew tender-hearted and as they shared rearing of this tender little newborn, their concern uh, poured out for the child, and it changed the town. What was once a den of vice and violence became what we would call a model town. The arrival of the child made a dramatic difference in the life of that small mining camp. Well... 2,000 years ago, a little baby was born in the town of Bethlehem, a little backwater town in Judea, and it didn't just change that town, it changed, that birth changed the whole world, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. It is a time of celebration. I've entitled my message, What Christ's Birth Proves. It proves some things to us. It gives us confidence and assurance that God is in control, and we see a couple of different thoughts. Here are my two main thoughts. His incarnation demonstrates the power of God. Only God could have a virgin bear a child that was placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit. His incarnation demonstrates the power of God. Second, his revelation validates the claims of God. God had been claiming all throughout human history that he was going to send a redeemer. And he gave many, many specifics. And this validates the claims of God. 
So let's back up and explore those two thoughts just a little bit here this morning. Matthew chapter 1, let me read from verse 18 down to almost the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and I think probably everyone here, but less someone listening doesn't understand, in the Jewish culture they were betrothed. It was similar to our engagement but much more serious. It was considered marriage, but not consummated marriage. They were married legally, but they were not living together. So stronger than engagement, but not quite full marriage. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, privately. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. So his name contains his mission. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, this vision uh, came to him in his sleep, that Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, took to Mary as his wife. So his incarnation demonstrates the power of God. How is that? Through a miraculous conception. This is the only conception of this kind in the history of mankind. Christ's birth was the union of God and man. You've heard the term in theology, it's called the hypostatic union. Jesus was not 50% man, 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. The joining of those two is the hypostatic union. God robed in human flesh. And it's described in different places in the Bible. John 1, as we heard earlier, says it this way, In the beginning was the Word. So before time began, before the earth or the universe was created, in the beginning was the Word, which is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the Lagos. And here in our English translation, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. He is the Creator. Jesus is the Creator. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Down in verse 14, and the Word, this God, now identified as Logos, the Word, who's eternally existed. What does it say in verse 14? And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him, John says. We beheld him. We looked at him. We lived with him. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten the Father, full 
of grace and truth. He lived a gracious life. He spoke nothing but truth. John summarizes it right there in that statement. The virgin birth was a miracle. It's inexplicable. There's no way to explain it. The Bible uses very general terms that the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary. And she became pregnant. And she birthed the child who was sinless. And there's never been a birth like that. And it's inexplicable in natural biology. We understand that. Every child born is a new creation. I had someone this week, I was talking with them on the phone. They were members here. They got saved here. And now they've moved away. And we were, we were talking and he said, you know, I think up in heaven there's just millions of human souls and God sends them at the right time into this world, into a mother and a father. I said, that is not true. That is not true. That's not Bible. And he's a friend. I said, that's not true. Where did you get that idea? That sounds like Mormonism. That's not true. A mother and a father, when they come together and a conception takes place, that's creative power that God delegated to a family, to a husband and a wife, to a mother and a father. Every child born is a new creation. We understand that. But that was not the case with Jesus Christ. It was not the coming together of Joseph and Mary. Now, they had other children after Christ. The Bible mentions them by name, many of them, both brothers and sisters. But Jesus Christ existed eternally. He existed not only before Joseph and Mary, but before any human beings ever existed. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And his coming into the world is no other way to say it, but it was a miracle. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Let me read them to you. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, so our children have partaken of flesh and blood, they're conceived, come into this world from their parents, he himself likewise shared in the same. He's speaking in this section about God coming into the world. He shared flesh and blood. He shared of the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus Christ had to robe himself in flesh. He had to become the incarnate God. He had to live a perfect life. And he had to die vicariously in our place to pay for our sins. That's the wonderful message of Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God. Matter of fact, some have pointed out that Jesus is the only one that could rule, and he will. We've studied in Revelation that he will rule not just in the millennial kingdom, but throughout eternity from the throne of David, because he's the rightful heir. And that all other Jews and their genealogies were destroyed in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and was burned and leveled to the ground. Jesus is the only one that can trace his genealogy and really ascend to the throne of David. His incarnation demonstrates the power of God because of his miraculous conception. It demonstrates the power of God through divine intervention. Down through time, as I mentioned earlier, God has been promising and making specific 
prophetic promises about the coming of Christ. And they were fulfilled. The very fact that Caesar required everyone to go and pay their tax and be registered in the census was something that God planned. And God orchestrated that to get Joseph and Mary so Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it was the Bethlehem of Ephrathah, down by Jerusalem, not the Bethlehem in the north. Micah 5.2 promised which Bethlehem it would be 500 and some years earlier. Divine intervention in the census and the fact that it was at Bethlehem and that the Magi had the prophecies of Daniel who lived where they lived. He lived in the Persian kingdom and spent his whole life there. And they had that section of the scriptures, of the Jewish scriptures. And they came all the way from the east to worship this king. And the shepherds, and the fact that they saw the angels and, and the angels interceding and, and communicating to both Joseph and to Mary, that God was injecting himself into human history. It was divine intervention in the whole Christmas story. We read this about Joseph. It's good for us to think a little bit about his situation. Joseph was engaged, technically married to Mary when he finds out that she's with child. There must have been no hiding as she was beginning to show. You can imagine the heartbreak that Joseph felt. He had been preparing during this period of time, preparing their home, getting ready to pay the dowry. He had the groomsmen lined up. All things were taken care of. And then he finds out that she is with child. That with that news, his espoused wife was pregnant. And so the Bible tells us he intended to do a private divorcement. That, that was not always the case in Jewish culture. If, if there was immorality, the woman was paraded and publicly shamed. In some cases, maybe even stoned when they were enforcing the law. But he wanted to just put her away privately. The word putting away means to divorce. And then God intervenes. God intervenes in Joseph's plan and to Joseph's life and tells him, stop. You may not be able to understand this, but it's from God. And God intervenes into Joseph's life. And you ever stop and think about it? Yes, there would be gossip. How about Mary's situation? There would be gossip. It's human nature. Hey, wait a minute. They weren't living together and Mary's pregnant. They haven't consummated their marriage and she's pregnant. I'm sure the, the gossip spread like a wildfire. There was gossip. There was an awkwardness. When Jesus was there and trying to explain if they even attempted to after a few uh, occasions that this was not really their child together, that this was a child that was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine people raising their eyebrows? There was gossip and there was awkwardness for Mary and Joseph. This is the point I want to make. Joseph and Mary were in the will of God. They were absolutely dead center, on target, in the will of God, doing what God told them to do. And they struggled with it. They suffered for it. They faced troubles because they were in the will of God. All of their questions weren't answered because they were in the will of God. What makes us think that if we're in the will of God that we'll never suffer, we'll never struggle, we'll never have questions? We will. 
here they are in the will of God, and they were struggling with it. But they were doing it. They were being obedient. So his incarnation demonstrates the power of God through his miraculous conception, through divine intervention. Second, his revelation validates the claims of God in the following verses, 21 through 23. And God claims two things, not just in this passage, he certainly does in this passage, but all throughout the Bible. Number one is that man is a hopeless, helpless sinner. And number two is that Jesus is the promised redeemer. And she will bring forth a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Man is a hopeless sinner. It says it here, but it says it throughout the Bible. Job 22.5 says, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, But we all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Our very best, our very religious best, we could say, our very best morality is like filthy rags in God's sight, he says. Kind of a disappointment, but reality. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. I doubt if there's anyone in the room today, or maybe even anyone that will listen to my voice later through recorded means, that would say, I'm not a sinner. We all know we're sinners. God's told mankind that since the very beginning, and it validates the claims of God that Jesus Christ came into the world. Someone said it this way. I've altered it a little bit. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been for advancement, God would have sent us a scientist or maybe an engineer. If our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent us a philanthropist or maybe an economist. If our greatest need had been for distraction, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. So God sent us a savior, a redeemer. So his revelation validates the claims of God. Second, that Jesus Christ is the promised redeemer. Jesus Christ is the promised redeemer. And his coming was predicted. I'll I'll just mention some of them. He would be born of a woman who was a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He would come from the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22, 18. He would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. He would be from the family of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That he would be born and die prescribed predetermined times, Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. The Bible even told us when he would be born and when he would be cut off. The Messiah will be cut off, it tells us, according to prophecy and exactly on timetable. So his coming was predicted. 
Look at the names that are mentioned here. His names have meaning. We've read verse 21 a couple of times. Call his name Jesus. That's his given name. For he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. When you boil it down, that's exactly what the word means. Jesus means Savior. It comes from the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name, Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. So simply the Aramaic or Greek equivalent of Joshua. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation or he's come to save. And of course, Christ, we're familiar with that. That's not his last name. It's not like Les Hines, Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. It means anointed or the anointed one. The the Jews have been looking for thousands of years for the anointed one. And it's translated also the Messiah. So the anointed one, Christ, the Messiah. So when they were talking about Christ, they were talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that would come to save them from their sins. And then in this passage, it also mentions, it quotes from Isaiah, and it says, and his name shall be Emmanuel. It explains what that name means. God with us. And it's exactly what he did. God came to be with us, not so much to show us how to live, although he lived a perfect life, or not so much to give us wonderful teaching, and none of us would deny that the Bible is above all moral other teachings and all good laws come from the Bible. But he didn't show us how to live so much or he didn't come to do us a body of teaching. He came to die. He came to live with us and ultimately to die. Emmanuel means God with us, Isaiah seven fourteen. Stop and think about that. We should at this time of the year. God came to be with us. It's just, it's humbling. It leaves us without words. He's so far above us. Why would he? Why would he extend himself to that degree and then die? There's hardly any way to compare it. For 18 years, Diane Fossey, the California-born zoologist, worked with gorillas on the continent of Africa, working in the Varinga Mountains, located in Rwanda. She separated herself from all the comforts of civilization to protect the endangered gorillas from poachers. She moved halfway around the world to literally live amongst the gorillas. She started living there in 1963, and by 1967, that's four years, by 1967, the gorillas had come to accept her as one of their own. Looking at the gorillas as deserving her love, she identified with them. She named them. She cradled their babies. She cried with them when they lost their dead. She once wrote, these powerful but shy and gentle animals accepted and responded to my attention when I acted like a gorilla. So I learned to scratch and groom myself and beat my chest. I imitated my subject, vocalizing their noises, their hoots, their grunts, their belches. I munched the foliage that they ate and kept low to the ground and deliberate in my movement, end of quote. After 18 years with the gorillas, it was home. 
She had become like them. She dwelt amongst them. They were her friends. And when faced with the danger of her mission, she would not leave. And in 1985, Fossey was killed, knifed to death by poachers whose trade she sought to destroy. She died for those she came to live amongst and save. In a very, very small way, because her death had no vicarious ability. But in a very, very simple way, we grasp a little bit more of what Christ did when he came. He came to live amongst us, ultimately so he could die for us. And that's what the famous John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world, the people in it, not the planet, not the terra firma, not the system. For God so loved the people in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not die and go to hell, but have everlasting life. So Jesus came to save. And all we have to do is accept him as our personal savior. I'm going to guess that there's some people in the service today that accepted Christ at this time of the year many, many years ago. Maybe it was through the singing of some of those Christmas carols. Maybe it was understanding for the first time why Christ came in the incarnation, ultimately to die on the cross and to be resurrected. If you're here today or listening to me today, and you've never really understood the importance of Christmas, or we would say the incarnation, but now you do. Now you understand why he came, that I would implore you, I would ask you to embrace Christ as your personal Savior. He came into the world to save everyone, but not everyone's going to be saved because it's a personal transaction. And you have to invite him to become your Redeemer, your Savior, your Lord. I hope that you'll do that. If we can help you, you let us know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this season of the year where we reflect and we don't really know exactly the day that you were born into this world. We know you always have existed. But we thank you that we can celebrate in this season your coming and the end of your coming, the telos, the goal of your coming to redeem sinners like us. May that truth resound in our hearts over and over during this holiday season. And for someone that maybe doesn't know you yet, may this be the time they trust you as Lord and Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.